0: Welcome to Indie Matters,
1: the show from the Nevada Independent.
0: I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. And before we get going, you might have heard our new theme song. That's from the talented Emily Pratt, and we hope you love it as much as we do.
0: Well, on this week's episode, uh, community members flooded the streets of Reno over the weekend to celebrate the city's Pride Parade. But outside of those festivities, there are people trying to boost awareness and education about gender and identity issues through art. We spoke with two artists about their creative work with a mission.
1: After that, reporter Tabitha Mueller talks about the COVID BA-5 variant, infection levels in and around the state, and what the future of the pandemic might look like.
0: At the end of the show, gaming reporter Howard Stutz talks about blowing up buildings, or at least demolishing them. They might use explosives, but more likely they'll be using a wrecking ball. And Vegas likes to knock down buildings, so we're gonna talk about that. The streets of Reno were filled with people celebrating gay pride in Reno's annual Pride Parade this past weekend. In a time where there is a threat to gay marriage, while it's being discussed in the Supreme Court, Congress is looking to codify gay marriage into law. But the festivities were plenty while celebrating the LGBTQ community in downtown Reno. In June, during Pride Month, Sierra Arts Foundation, a Reno-based nonprofit that supports and boosts local artists and promotes art education, hosted dozens of local queer artists in one of their galleries. I sat down with a few of those artists to talk about identity in both the queer community and in the arts community.
2: Hello, my name is Brandon Copley. I am 36 years old. I am from Reno, Nevada. My mother is from the Maidu tribe, which is Northern California. And my father is from Mohawk and Seneca, which is uh, Western New York. And I'm a multimedia assemblage artist. And I identify as Two-Spirit.
0: A simplified version of what two-spirit is, is an identity that some Native Americans take on that refers to them taking on both a male and a female role in their communities.
2: Indigenous people call themselves like two-spirits. It's the masculine and the feminine, like combining together. It's... Not hugely, like, recorded, so it's kind of hard to identify either as, like, two-spirit or native. Probably mostly identify with the queer community. I mean, I watch, like, RuPaul's Drag Race, like, every week, so (laughs) that's, like, my go-to TV show. I love watching that. It's a largely matriarchal society. I mean, there is a sort of disconnect.
0: Brandon's piece in the gallery was titled The Boxes That Broke Us and was a mixed-media piece. It shows a broken feather hanging from a rosary from a house, a bow and arrow hanging from a schoolhouse, and a corn husk doll and a noose hanging from a church.
2: So the main inspiration behind the boxes that broke us was I read the Black Elk Speaks, which is a Sioux holy man. And his kind of definition of the boxes were these two-dimensional houses or schools that confined Americans or natives in kind of their spirit. So kind of breaking that was using the rosaries to kind of break the native spirit of the free-flowing feather and using kind of like the feminine toy, like the corn doll that's broken there and using like a traditionally masculine toy for boys was the bow and arrow that's broken as well. In my own, like, process of grieving, like, a lot of the Indian residential school news, it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, this is a way for me to reconnect with not only, like, my heritage, but a different side of the heritage. So a lot of it had to do with, like, kind of processing that grief.
3: Artists can bring anything to the table, and some artists, they really use, you know, painting, sculpture, film, to really kind of grapple with the complexities of identity, including, you know, gender and sexuality.
0: That was Lynn Camella, a professor of gender and sexual studies at UNLV.
3: I think when it comes to queer artists and queer art, You know, certainly not all queer artists explore queerness in their art, but a number of them do. And I think that visual mediums allow them to really start to tackle and kind of blow apart really rigid categories and identity markers and I think explore ideas and sometimes even themselves in really intersectional and complex ways.
4: of move in that middle space between like having the privilege of that heterosexual relationship but then also feeling queer it's taken me a a really long time to find where i am in the queer community but i definitely do feel like that is like those are my people i felt other from like heteronormative Hey, I'm Jenny Snaza. I'm a visual artist. I identify as pansexual. I'm a mother and I have two beautiful children and I am with a cis male partner.
0: Jenny is another artist that was featured in the Sierra Arts Gallery. Her piece titled Tears is a tile piece where the tiles are breaking and a colorful mass is breaking through the center.
4: It's called Tears, but there's also like this other meaning of tears and so in the breaks there's this kind of seeping out and this push out of the grid and so that piece was such a metaphor for my identity and my queerness kind of pushing through this other that topical identity
0: jenny talked about her struggle of really embracing her queer side while outwardly being in a heterosexual relationship
4: When you go out as a couple, my identity is not something that is brought up. It's just assumed that Mm. I'm heterosexual. It's a really privileged way to move through the world. And I don't have to be confronted with kind of the the homophobia or the stereotypes and all the negative energy that can come from outside view.
0: Brandon also struggles with his identity, both as a member of the queer and Native community, when it comes to both his Native and queer identities and his identity as an artist.
2: This is like the first piece I've ever actually had displayed, so I'm very much like trying to find my footing. I feel like it's kind of hard to like blend the two together, because it's always been kind of like a struggle, a personal struggle, is just like, do I identify as more two-spirit or more Native, or what's kind of like the blend? I'm one of the the generations that's part of the lost generation that's not fully native, but obviously not fully white either. So it's hard to identify as either one or the other, or this or that. Some people don't even know what two-spirit means or whatever, but I feel like kind of getting to a point where I can work on art that's native or queer is okay, and then blending that together eventually, I'll probably get there, hopefully.
0: Brandon said his interest in photography led to his current artistic style, which in his words involves being able to juxtapose things or kind of mess with people's expectations.
2: So kind of like that idea of working in 3D and being around like something physical that people can either interact with or see different angles or sides with. I still kind of feel like I'm just like learning about this whole process. There's kind of like this division between especially like Native art and other artists that it's like wholly traditional. Like this is how the Natives did it, you know, centuries ago. And that's how it's supposed to be done. And that's how you should do it. Because I have family members that have done that. Like this is the necklace that I've made and all sourced this way. And I'm just like, OK, that's a little little much. And then there's this other kind of like contrast to that where There's kind of this new age contemporary native art where it's kind of like pushing new mediums and pushing new ideas as well, too, which I kind of like. And I feel like that's where I'm going towards.
0: Jenny is also working towards trying to understand her identity more with her art.
4: Right now I'm working with tile, which I love materials in general and just exploring how the media works and exists in its own space. So the tile as like a really fragile yet durable material. We line our cities with it. We line our houses with it. It exists in all these places. So you have this tile and this grid, which I think is just the perfect metaphor for so many things, but especially in the piece that I had at the show for Pride Month, it's like this white, sterile grid, which I think just perfectly represents the patriarchy. But then like, The tile can represent all different kinds of systems. And so when we break the system, like there has to be this action, this like breaking point where there is room for change. So when you break it, there's this new space in the middle that I just think is so optimistic and exciting. And there's room for action and growth. I hope that the, like the optimism of a break comes through and I think that especially with the pandemic and like everything that's happened I feel like there's been this huge crashing of identity and feeling of loss and sometimes things come out of trauma that are that are life-changing and there's so much more on the other side and I just I feel that matches up so much with like queer identity and yeah everything that's going on in the world right now.
0: And let's talk about some of what's going on in the country right now. Here's UNLV professor Lynn Camella again.
3: We're at a really kind of dangerous moment, I think. And it's not just the recent decision around Roe v. Wade that makes it a dangerous moment, right? But what the overturning of that decision might mean for precedence on which kind of gay marriage rests. So there's that, right? Like what this recent Supreme Court decision means for all sorts of other decisions. But I think if we look around the country right now at what is happening in certain state legislatures, Let's take Florida, for example, you know, the passage of the don't say gay bill. It is becoming increasingly difficult for educators to talk about and teach certain kinds of material related to gender, related to sexuality, and certainly related to the history of race and racism in this country. So I think what we're seeing across the country is a really dangerous kind of legislative overreach. And a, we're, we're sitting at a very, very challenging moment in terms of censorship, right? Mm-hmm. And I think art has always been on the front lines of pushing back against censorship, Um, artwork that engages with topics of gender and sexuality is important in the best of times, and it is especially, especially important in dangerous times.
0: Art is a way for people to express themselves, and Jenny told me that her art is about her identity and about her struggles of being in the middle and not being sure if she wants to label things.
4: When you put a label to your identity, it gives you a lot of power and is super important for coming together, moving the cause forward, visibility. It's so powerful. But then I think there's another side of that where in naming something, it becomes concrete in a way that maybe isn't flexible enough.
0: And according to Lynn, the flexibility of expression is exactly the point of art.
4: Gender organizes the world
3: in really basic ways from kind of, you know, public bathrooms to the toy stores. (laughs) And so I think that queer artists really have a potential to kind of move beyond the binary, right? To complicate people's ideas that gender is an either or, or that sexuality or sexual orientation rather is, you know, you're straight or you're gay.
0: If you'd like to see Tears by Jenny Snazza or The Boxes That Broke Us by Brandon Copley, they'll be linked in the description of this episode. Also, right now you can take a virtual tour of the Sierra Arts Gallery on their website. All right, Jacob. Well, I'm not going to lie. Most of the time I can find some sort of stupid or clever transition between segments. Uh, But this week we are going from queer artists to everyone's favorite topic, COVID-19. And there really isn't much through line for those two. So uh,
1: here's the transition. (laughs) Well, that's OK, Joey. Uh, For the listeners, we're going to hear from our reporter, Tabitha Mueller, who's been reporting on all the COVID data that's been coming into Nevada.
0: That's right. She sat down with me to talk specifically about the new variant of COVID that we are seeing spread rapidly through the state. Alrighty, Well, I am here with reporter Tabitha Mueller. Tabitha, you have taken up the mantle of reporting on COVID in recent months, and we haven't done a ton of COVID coverage on the podcast as of recently, but there has been a lot of changes recently, and I think it's good to keep folks up to date. And especially with this new variant, we're talking about COVID some more. So to start off, I just wanted to talk about this variant, BA.5.
5: What is it? Explain to me a little bit about what BA.5 is. So BA.5 is a sub of the Omicron variant. It's basically created through random mutations that take place when a virus copies itself as it moves from person to person. And the way we can think about a virus mutating is like typos in a genetic code. Mutations are very normal. It's a natural part of any virus. It happens all the time and sometimes those mutations can benefit the virus letting it better evade immune systems or more easily spread from person to person and potentially becoming the dominant the next dominant strain so that's what we're seeing with BA5 and and like
0: you said it's a mutation what number variant is this kind of how did we get to this point
5: Man, I there are so many variants all the time that I can't just give you a straight, there are 500 variants of this, right? And we see them cropping up in different parts of the world. As globalization has happened, as we have a lot of air travel, it's really easy for one variant that gets more transmissible to transfer to another place and go from there, you know, by driving in a car and going to a new community or by flying on an airplane. So the big thing about BA-5 is that it's more transmissible than other virus variants. But that the but I will say the disease operates very similarly. The severity is very similar. We're not seeing necessarily people getting sicker because of this variant. It's just that more people are catching it. And
0: I know we talked about this a while back, but I mean, experts have been saying we're kind of in the endemic stage of the pandemic at this point, something we're going to be living with for a really long time. Is COVID here to stay, basically? And and is this something we're going to be seeing for years to come?
5: COVID is definitely here to stay. I think that it's a matter now of sort of an individual choice of when do I wear a mask? When do I go out into public? How do I choose to navigate this world that we live in? where this virus is present and I think there I was speaking with some scientists for my most recent article on COVID-19 and they were saying that we sort of had an opportunity to achieve herd immunity but because not enough people got vaccinated we've sort of missed the boat on that option so right now it's really important to get vaccinated stay up to date on vaccinations and you were talking about kind of not enough people getting
0: vaccinated to create that herd immunity, and so now we live with this. But is that initial vaccine even relevant or effective with what the virus is now?
5: So the way I've heard it described is the vaccine may not be able to stop the full variant because it's mutating, but it can alleviate the severity of that variant, right? it still is effective to the degree that it is, like we see fewer hospitalizations among people who've been vaccinated. It just may not be 100% effective, especially as the virus mutates. And
0: how often are we seeing the virus mutate right now?
5: So basically what we're seeing is COVID-19 variants every two to four months. And right now, even though our focus is centered on the Omicron variants BA4 and BA5, I've heard from various professors and epidemiologists that they wouldn't be surprised if that focus shifts to a different variant within the next few months or so.
0: And I guess generally the the, the knowledge that scientists have about, about viruses is that the longer that they exist, the more transmissible and the less deadly they'll be. Is that kind of the trend that we're seeing with each new variant?
5: Before, we were seeing kind of a three-month protection window after you caught COVID. But now that window has shortened with the latest variant, and some health officials are saying that you could be reinfected in as little as 28 days.
0: How are our hospital systems doing with COVID right now? Because I think cases are up from where we were seeing a few months ago. Has the hospital system seen an increase as well?
5: So I think we have been seeing in the past, over the past few weeks, an increase in people using the hospital system from people that I've spoken with. The hospital system hasn't been overwhelmed, but I think it's really important to note that we are seeing a nursing shortage right now. We are seeing stress on the healthcare infrastructure from outside factors that may not have to do with COVID. So yes, I think right now everything is sort of, they're able to handle the number of cases that are coming in. But if we do see an extreme rise, that could change. And you mentioned
0: people can get their boosters. I have my first booster. When am I able to get my second booster?
5: So as, as far as I know for that second booster, I think they're still discussing it, especially for younger populations that are not immunocompromised or at risk. I saw an article the other day talking about how the Food and Drug Administration is sort of looking at it, going through that approval process. but it. It just depends on when that finally gets through because it has to go through all the checks and everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Got it, yeah. And kids, right? How many children are vaccinated? What are those age ranges? And uh, and can certain age ranges get their first booster at this point? Or what are we looking at there?
5: Children under five are now available to get the vaccine. And I'm gonna be working on a story on this in the future, but we're actually seeing pretty low vaccination rates for children under five. I think there's some concern about that. And that's something that we're gonna have to watch and pay attention to.
0: How has Nevada fared compared to other states when talking about COVID right now?
5: So looking at Nevada's trend line for cases and, and other aspects i think we're kind of on par with other states it's not that we're seeing necessarily worse levels or higher levels i think you're just seeing what we're seeing in other places right rise and fall in cases our trend line looks very similar to the national one we used to have that massive omicron surge earlier this year and then i think though that what officials are saying is based off of wastewater data that we're actually, we may not see a surge from this most recent variant, but it appears to be that the virus is sort of plateauing right now.
0: Well, and you mentioned wastewater, how, you know, how we're tracking data right now, the numbers that we're seeing of reported cases are probably way less than the number of actual cases. Explain to me where we're getting that data. Is it all from, is it all from our poop?
5: So (laughs) everyone poops, right? I, I think that... First of all, what you need to understand is that you're right. We don't track cases that are just, I'm at home taking an at-home test. I don't have any place to put that. And the second piece is, is we've seen officials estimate that case levels are probably six to eight times higher than what we're seeing now. That's probably closer to the number of cases that we're actually experiencing, which is very high. And with that sort of difficulty in measuring case levels in the community, what researchers and scientists are doing is measuring the level of coronavirus variants in wastewater. So everyone poops. What scientists are doing is they're grabbing samples of wastewater and they're measuring the concentration of the the SARS-CoV-2 virus in those wastewater samples. And that's really been an excellent way for us to keep track of the overall trends. Are we seeing cases rise? Are we seeing cases fall? Can we expect a surge? Because it's almost an instantaneous glimpse of what's happening in our community right now versus waiting a week or two weeks for all of the tests to come in. That wastewater testing can also tell us what variants we're seeing. That's how we're keeping track of the variants. Right now, about 90% of the genomes found in wastewater in southern Nevada are Omicron variants, BA4 and BA5. And I think the challenge moving forward is really going to be what's the next variant? How is that going to affect the population?
1: now we're going to hear from reporter Howard Stutz, who sat down with Joey to talk about Red Rock Station Casino's decision to permanently close and demolish three of their casinos—Texas Station, Fiesta Rancho, and Fiesta Henderson. Also, Howard and Joey refer to both Red Rock and Station Casinos, and for the purposes of this story, they're essentially the same entity.
0: I am here with gaming reporter Howard Stutz. And Howard, you and I are talking about one thing that's in the news recently, which is that Station Casinos, Red Rock, they're demolishing some of their older buildings that have been closed for a little while due to the pandemic. But I also want to talk a little bit more broadly about demolishing buildings in general and kind of the the, the strange nature of gaming regulations when it comes to closing casinos and stuff like that. But to start off, let's talk about what, what's going on in Las Vegas right now. Station's Casino is demolishing what casinos and why?
6: Well, the station had three casinos that would have been closed since the pandemic. The two Fiesta properties, one's in North Las Vegas, one's in Henderson, and the Texas station, which is also in North Las Vegas. They had a fourth one that they never reopened with the Palms, which they sold to the San Manuel Indian tribe. And that's since been reopened. These properties have been closed now going on 28, 29 months. And then recently they announced that they were going to sell the sites and they weren't going to reopen them as casinos. And that really wasn't a surprise that they weren't going to reopen them because they've been closed so long, they're focused on other projects. But the surprise was, one, that they were going to demolish the buildings. And some of these buildings are not really that old. (laughs) And they're going to sell the sites without the gaming entitlements. In other words, whoever buys those properties has to sign off on the deed that gaming will not be conducted on those sites. And so in a sense, what it's done is, is reduce the market for local casinos. It's, it's taken away anybody that would come in as competition. So kind of protecting their tariff is, is really all they're doing. They've, they've moved about 90% of the business from those three properties to their other casinos in town. They're moving on to other ideas.
0: Why demolish it and not just sell the building?
6: If you're not going to do gaming on those buildings, it's kind of hard to convert them into something else. So basically it gives whoever buys the land a clean clean slate to work with. Demolishing casinos in this town is not unusual. You know, my old boss, I once called it spectator sport because we've seen all the um, the major demo- demolitions on the Strip from the starting with the dunes, all the different properties. We go up and down the Strip, the Frontier, Stardust, the Desert Inn, they were all blown up. The landmark, the most famous because it was, blown up and used for the movie, Mars Attacks. So I don't think these are gonna have that type of fanfare. I think they'll just be taken down quickly. But it is kind of the first time that I can think of as long as I've been in town that a major casino has been taken down and not redeveloped as a casino site. The landmark was probably the last. It was taken down and became a parking lot for the Las Vegas Convention Center. So this is very unusual that they're going to come down and they're not going to be um, hotel casinos. But then again, these aren't major properties. So it's not a big dent in the industry.
0: Yeah, and I mean... I don't know, like I, you don't see a lot of buildings get demolished all the time, right? And I feel like Vegas is a city where they're demolishing more buildings and they're building new buildings pretty frequently, I feel like, right? The building churn of Las Vegas, it seems like it's more frequent than other cities, right?
6: Well, here's, here's the striking thing is that the Mirage was the very first all new resort of the Strip. It's in 15 years when it opened in 1989. It started the building boom that we saw on the Strip. The Mirage now has been sold to Hard Rock, they're not going to demolish the building, but they're going to demolish key parts of it, and especially the volcano, the fake volcano out in front that's causing folks to sign letters of, and a GoFundMe campaign to save the volcano. But now all of a sudden the Mirage, which is was open in 1989, the name is going away. It's going to be repurposed. You won't see the building demolished, but you're going to see a real heavy renovation of the property. So that's just, that's the nature of Vegas because what's new is not as old now.
0: Demolishing a building is such a crazy undertaking in my mind, right? Like you got to, you have to especially place explosives around it and make sure it's safe and let everyone know that it's going to happen.
6: What's interesting about demolishing this building is they haven't operated this property in 29 months. It's cost the company every three months, about $2 million to keep them operational. So now you're going to demolish these buildings there's going to be an added cost there you're going to take the gaming entitlements off the off the sites they're going to spend a lot of money to do all this i don't know how much but the value of the real estate is changed because without the gaming entitlements, they're probably going to get a, a lesser price for those properties. So we'll see how this all plays out. I mean, I can't wait to see the math gymnastics on this, on how they're going to explaining it at some point down the road. But it, it just seems without the gaming entitlements on those sites, you're losing some value to them.
0: Well, my last question before we wrap up, when, when you talk about a casino closing, these casinos have been closed for a while. The employees though, what's happening with them?
6: Well, since it was the pandemic, probably most of the employees got laid off yeah. and station said half of those employees at those three properties were moved to other have had jobs with other station casinos properties. They've had this fight with the culinary union. The culinary union has complained about the employees not being rehired. So I'm sure we're going to hear more now about what about moving these, these people that lost their jobs to other station casino properties.
0: All right, Howard. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You have a story that just ran on the Fiesta Henderson that that is getting demolished, and you have a newsletter, Indie Gaming, which comes out on every Wednesday.
6: It's free. That's what I always <laughs> tell everybody, sign up. All you need to put it in your put it in your email and it's free. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Howard. Anytime, Joey. Thanks for having me on the podcast.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
0: We'd like to thank Brandon Copley, Jenny Snazza, Lynn Comella, Tabitha Mueller, and Howard Stutz for being on the show this week.
1: This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley.
0: If you want to support the show, you can leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us with your fastest Rubik's Cube solve time or whatever else is on your mind at podcast at theenvyindie.com.
1: Our new original theme song is from the talented Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. about the COVID BA-5 variant. <coughs> oh, <Jesus Christ. laughs> no, I don't actually have COVID, this is a That's Uber. good. <clears throat> okay. <laughs>